You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Amen. It's a pleasure to be here with you all this morning. It's a pleasure to just enjoy worshiping our Lord and Savior together, the one who is to be exalted above all, as we sang a little bit earlier. If I, if I haven't had the chance to meet you, I go by Ant. I get the privilege of serving here as pastor at Midtown Two Notch. Very glad, especially if you're a guest and a visitor here with us today. We're very glad that you are here. If you are a visitor and we haven't had a chance to meet you, we would love for you to connect maybe with someone from our host team at the end of our time together today. They should have um, some an, a way to get information from you so we can follow up with you and just acknowledge that you have been here with us today. So we'd love to be able to connect with you in the lobby after our time together today in the Word and in our time of worship together. We're continuing on week number two in a series that we're just calling Why I Am a Christian. Why I'm a Christian. It's very important in an age and a time of skepticism that we find ourselves living in. People skeptical about God, about faith, about religion. People oftentimes have questions. Why do we actually believe the things that we believe? Last week, we talked about why we believe in God as a creator. One of the points that we tried to establish very clearly is that all of us live our lives based on faith and reason, a combination of faith and reason. Even those who at times might look down on Christians or other, others who have faith in a God or some form of deity, even though many would look down on us and say we believe in things that we can't prove, the reality is all of us believe in things that we cannot prove to some degree. For more on that, feel free to go. You can, if, in case you're not aware of this already, we do post our sermons at midtowntunash.com. You can go to midtowntunash.com slash teaching. I would recommend that you go and look at or listen to that sermon that is posted. One of the reasons I find that to be important is because the arguments and the, the points that we'll be making throughout this series, especially the first three weeks, will build upon each other. So especially if some of the things feel disconnected today, you'll definitely want to go back and check out that sermon online. So question for us today, why... Specifically, not only do we believe in God, why do we believe in Jesus? Why do we believe that he specifically is the one where we can find new life in him, eternal life in him? Why do we believe in him? There are many others who believe in God, as we argued for last week, that believe in a different God than we do. Why do we believe in Jesus, that he is the way, that he is the truth, that he is the life. Why do you believe in Jesus? Why do you believe his claims that he makes about himself? Why are we as Christians so restrictive to say the only way to actually have eternal life is through Jesus Christ alone? Why don't we just say, well, if, as long as you follow a God and he's positive and he leads you to good morals and doing good things, then go ahead and follow that one. Why don't we take that stance? Why do we say, no, Jesus is the way, the only way to actually have eternal life and to go on to be with the Father forever. Why do we believe in Jesus? One of the points that we said last week was, though all of us have things that we believe in, that we place our faith, our hope, and our trust in, that we can't prove, we do want to make sure we still look for evidences, because faith is not, in in the Bible, distinct from reason. It's a misconception a lot of people have about faith. Faith in the Bible is not disconnected from reason. Faith in the Bible is disconnected from suppressing the truth, as we talked about last week, and also is disconnected from sight. Paul says we walk by faith and not by sight. 
So we have faith in things that we cannot see, but it is not disconnected from reason, from our minds, the minds that God gave us. So the question we have to ask is, which worldview is the best explanation for the evidence that we find? Last week we talked about for God. This week we'll talk about for specifically believing in Jesus. Joseph Smith's claim to be a prophet is rooted in his claim that he had a personal encounter with an angel, and that angel gave him a message that he was to share with others. The thing that he claims validates his ministry, this this conversation he had with this angel, is not something that, that can be proved or disproven. Either you take him at his word or you do not, and you follow him. Muhammad claimed that his ministry and leadership are valid because he had a vision from God. This is not something that can be proven to be true or proven to be false. Either you take him at his word or you don't. That's not the case with Christianity. That is not the case with Christianity. Christianity is distinct from other faiths and other religions. Check out what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 6. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 6. This is written probably about 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. So this would have been in the lifetime of eyewitnesses of our risen Savior. Paul writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Jesus' followers held to his resurrection from the dead as the validation for his ministry. The validation of his ministry rests in in a historical event. Jesus isn't just some mythological figure that lives in our hearts but didn't live in history. No, he was actually a man who lived in history. Historians wrote about him. His life was real. The question is, did he get out of the grave or not? The question is, did he predict his death as his followers said that he did and say that he was going to come back to life and then actually do it? Did he come back to life? This question makes all the difference. The answer to this question is everything. It's everything. If Jesus did not get out of the grave, then throw Christianity away. We need to stop what we're doing. Everybody gets their money back and go and just live life and be merry. Seemed like I got too excited about getting the money back part. (laughs) Should have left that out. The Apostle Paul talks about how important the resurrection is to the Christian faith in 1 Corinthians 15, 14. He writes, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain, Paul says. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, everything we do as followers of Jesus are worth it. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, every sacrifice that you have made for the cause of Christ is worthless, is utterly a waste of time, and is actually foolishness. So we need to decide, does the evidence support the belief that he actually got out of the grave? Does the the evidence actually support the belief that he did get out of the grave, that there was actually a resurrection? Because if Jesus did get out of the grave, then he deserves our worship and our highest allegiance. 
then it proves that he is God as he says he was. It proves that he defeated death, which means we can find eternal life and new life in him. If he did actually get out of the grave, then we should hang on every word that he gives us and seek to follow him and know him as much as we possibly can. If he did get out of the grave, then we should gather together consistently and worship and sing songs. If he did get out of the grave, then we should follow him and sacrifice whatever we need to sacrifice that we might follow him more that others might know him. If he got out of the grave, it changes everything. It changes everything. If he was raised from the dead, then we can believe in things in the Bible that seem impossible, like Jonah getting swallowed by fish, God answering Joshua's prayer to make the sun stand still, Noah and the ark. If you can believe in the resurrection, we can believe in all of these other things that Jesus would have supported as a Jew at that time. If Jesus was raised from the dead, then we can believe that we can be made new and be transformed in him that we can actually have eternal hope that nothing can shake and nothing can change if he actually got out of the grave, then we know that we can actually have eternal life. This is very important. This means that Christianity as a faith is actually falsifiable. I'll explain what I mean. You can't prove that Joseph Smith didn't talk to an angel. You can't prove that Muhammad didn't have a vision from God. You can't prove those things to be false. Christianity bases his claim off of one thing. Jesus died, got out of the grave, alive. If you find his body, you can falsify it. Christianity is actually falsifiable if his body could actually be found. These other religions and faith, you, there's, there's no way to actually prove whether it happened or not. But Christianity is rooted in a historical event that, as Paul just wrote, after he got out of the grave, he appeared to, and Paul names specific people, and this says, and also he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers who were still alive when he wrote that letter, 1 Corinthians. Jesus' followers said that Jesus did exactly what he said he was going to do, that he was killed and that he rose again on the third day. It's my belief that if something like that were to happen, something so remarkable, there would be evidence for it. That if somebody actually died, got out of the grave, and then appeared to multiple eyewitnesses, that there would be evidences that when we look back in history, we can look back and see, actually, this actually makes sense. There's evidence for this actually happening. I have 10, I don't usually don't do point sermons. I have 10 points, 10 evidences for how, how we can know that the resurrection is actually real. I'm going to start number one. Number one evidence for the resurrection. Those who started proclaiming Jesus credited women as the first eyewitnesses of our resurrected Lord. This may not sound like, this may be hard to understand at first note, but you have to understand a few things. Mary Magdalene is credited as the first person to have seen the risen Lord. The first proclaimer of the good news that Jesus Christ got out of the grave, is alive, he is Lord, he is Savior, and he is still reigning. Mary Magdalene is the first to have witnessed it. Now, at this time, women's testimony was not admissible in court oftentimes. Women were looked down on and seen as uneducated. In fact, early pagan critics of Christianity latched onto this and dismissed the resurrection as the word of hysterical females. In fact, this is the argument of Celsus, a second century despiser of Christianity, who tried to use this against Christianity. On top of that, Mary Magdalene, in the book of Luke, is said to have had eight demons cast out of her. So the person that they chose, the person that they said 
was the first eyewitness of the resurrection and someone who would have been marginalized, someone who people would not have believed, and someone who people would have looked down on because Luke, who writes the longest biography that we have, most extensive biography of Jesus' life that we have, said that she actually had demons in her that were, excuse me, seven demons cast out of her. If you're making up a lie, that's not how you tell it. If you're making up a lie that you're just trying to get people to believe what you're saying, you probably find a politician, a political leader, someone who has a very high ranking in society. If the followers of Jesus at this time were making up a lie, they wouldn't have told the truth that a woman was the first to see our resurrected Lord. Mary Magdalene wouldn't have been someone that you would put out as the face of your movement if you're just trying to come up with something to get people on board with what you are saying. Why would they say that Mary Magdalene was the first to see the resurrected Lord? Because it is true. Because he got up out of the grave, just as he says he would. Point number two, the disciples remained very loyal to Jesus. Crucifixion had a few different purposes at this time in the Roman Empire. One of those purposes was to make an example out of you to warn anyone else not to follow in your footsteps. So they would hang you publicly on a cross, naked. They would shame you in about as many ways as they could. They would, they would beat you intentionally, oftentimes within an inch of your life, because they wanted everyone who followed you to know, if you continue to follow this person, this is what's going to happen to you. They also did it to let you know that, hey, this person you were following, this Messiah, whatever, we just defeated them. We just defeated them. There were many people who claimed to be a Messiah, claimed to be the one that God had sent. There were many people who were crucified, and those who followed, those who were crucified, did not continue the movement because their leader was killed, and they didn't want to follow in the footsteps of a dead leader. So the movement stopped. That wasn't the case with Christianity. That's not what happened with Christianity. The, the disciples stayed loyal to Jesus after they claimed to have seen him alive, and this is evidence that he was actually alive. Why would they continue the movement on if their Savior, if their leader was still dead? I love what, what we see in Luke chapter 24, verses 20 and 21. This is the disciples having a conversation after Jesus was crucified, before they know that Jesus is actually with them and is risen from the dead. Verse 20. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped, past tense, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Or since these things happened. He's saying before they killed him, we had hoped that he was the one that was going to save Israel, that was going to save the people of God. They're saying, but now he's dead. Just a few verses later, Jesus is going to reveal to them that he is actually resurrected. He has been raised from the dead. But we see that they had given up hope that he was going to do what he said he was going to do. But yet when they realized he was alive, they continued the movement forward. What might have caused them to regain their hope? Why did they regain hope and continue the movement? Because Jesus got out of the grave just like he said he would. Point number three. Eyewitness stories were too early to have been falsified. Eyewitness stories were too early to have been falsified. I want to go back to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 5 and 6. This is Paul talking about Jesus. And that he, Jesus, appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the 12, the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen Asleep Again, this is 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus that Paul is writing. He's saying that many of them are still alive. What's the implication? You can go ask them. 
You can go ask them. He named who they were. And then he said, he actually, he appeared to 500 more people than that. They're still alive. You can go ask them if you don't believe that he actually got out of the grave. You don't make an argument that someone got out of the grave by pointing out eyewitnesses that didn't actually see him get out of the grave. Why is Paul so confident? Because Jesus actually got out of the grave. And if people wanted to destroy the movement, or if it wasn't true, they would just say, hey, actually, I was there. It didn't happen like that. No, Paul says with confidence to the Corinthian church that many saw him alive. A lot of people say that the story of Jesus is like a legend story, right? Like, like King Arthur. He was supposed to be this king many, many years ago, slayed dragons, did all this miraculous, magical type of stuff. Here's the thing. The, the full legend, as we understand it now, of King Arthur wasn't, de- wasn't fully developed until about 600 years after his death. Why is that? Because you can't make a legend story why people who actually knew the person are still alive. You can't make a legend story this, this soon, this, this person 20 years ago. Somebody can't come and make a legend story about something that happened in Columbia 20 years ago because we'll be like, no, that's not how it happened. I was there. This isn't a legend story. Legend stories don't come to be in 20 years after the person died. Paul says 500 eyewitnesses. Not saying 25 people. He's not saying 50 people. He's not saying 100 people saw Christ alive. He's saying 500 people. Now, I don't have a legal degree, but I've watched a good bit of Law and Order, so I feel confident. (laughs) That I, can, that I can comment pretty clearly on legal matters and things like that. If you have a credible eyewitness to something, you often have a strong case, especially if that eyewitness doesn't have anything to gain from saying that I'm an eyewitness of this thing happening. Now, if you have that person, not only do they not gain anything by saying that, but what if they actually lose by saying that? What if that person actually stands to suffer a lot? What if the family of that person actually stands to suffer if they testify to this thing that they're testifying about? What if that was true for 25 people? What if that was true for 100 people? What if it was true for 500 people that they, stand, they, they stood to lose, that they stood to be persecuted, that they stood to be looked down on, that they stood to be marginalized, them and their families, if they testified to this event and 500 people still testified to it actually happening? I think you'd have a strong case. I think it would be incredibly compelling knowing that they would face much pain and persecution for this testimony. And that leads to my next point. Number four, lying about it would have cost them too much. Lying about it would have cost them way too much. They gained nothing from this lie. The story that they told was entirely counterproductive to them actually gaining any type of social status or esteem. People thought they were ridiculous. They got made fun of because of this. And they were even beaten because of this. I want to read what the Apostle Paul writes in his second letter to the Corinthian church. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I read verse 23 on to verse 27. This is Paul talking about what he suffered for the cost of Christ because he would not deny the fact that Jesus was actually Alive. I want you to ask yourself this question. What truths would, would you hold on to so strongly that you would suffer through this? Maybe a better question is, is there any type of lie that you would continue to tell if it cost you this? Paul says, with far greater labors, with far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. At that time, when the Jews would beat you, they would think they thought 40 lashes would kill somebody. So they would do, they called it 40 lashes minus one instead of saying 39 to say, yeah, we, we almost killed him, but we tried to beat him within an inch of his life. 
Verse 25, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And this is just the first part of Paul's ministry. This is written early in his ministry. He continued to do ministry for years after this. This was not an extensive list of all of his suffering. Eventually, history tells us that Paul was beheaded in Rome for his faith in Christ. His sufferings were extreme and severe, but he wasn't the only one that suffered for this. I want to share how some of Christ's followers were martyred or harmed for their death. For Bartholomew, most agree that he, was mur- that he was martyred, though there are various beliefs about how he died. Many believe he died in Asia Minor after being flayed to death by a whip. One named James is believed to have been beheaded by with a sword. Another James is believed to have been stoned and clubbed to death. Philip is believed to have been crucified or hanged. Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross. Thomas was believed to have been impaled with a spear. Matthias believed, was believed to be stoned or beheaded. Thaddeus believed to either be clubbed to death or killed with arrows. John survived being burned with oil. Peter was said to have been crucified upside down. And not one of them recanted. And not one of them, no matter what they suffered, said, you know what, this actually isn't true. Not one of them. What manner of deception? Is there anything that you've ever tried to deceive someone into believing that, that when they say, okay, now we're about to kill you, we're about to make your children orphans. Would, they, would, you, would you not stop? Would you say, okay, it's actually not true? Not one of them recanted. Not one of them said it's actually not true. They all carried this truth to their grave. And it wasn't just the, the apostles. It wasn't just the disciples. If you know your history, in AD 64, it's been 30 some odd years after Jesus' death and resurrection, Nero, who was the emperor, blamed Christians for the fire that was set in Rome. So Christians now are being persecuted at an alarming rate. Writers at this time say that some of those punishments included having the carcasses of dead animals tied to their backs as a means of torture and eventual slow execution. Many of them were nailed to crosses. Many of them were set on fire in Nero's garden as a spectacle for all to see because they would not deny the fact that Jesus actually got out of the grave. All of this suffering would have been avoided if they would have just said that Jesus isn't who he said he was but they refuse to do so. I don't know how much you've ever thought about the nature of lying, but people don't lie to make their lives worse. People don't lie to make their lives worse. People don't don't suffer unbelievable amounts of torture and lying to make their lives worse. Why would they be willing to do this? Because Jesus got out of the grave, just like he said he would. Just like he said he would. Point number five, his disciples were transformed from cowards to courageous. Cowards to courageous. After Jesus died, before they knew that he was alive, they were hiding. They were afraid. Peter, when Jesus has been taken away, denies Jesus, denies that he's actually a follower of Jesus. The other disciples just scatter and run away. Thomas was a doubter like many of us. He said, I won't believe in the resurrection until I see him, until I touch him with my own hands. I will not believe. 
He then, after seeing Jesus alive again, went and was martyred for his faith, as many of the disciples were. He went from being skeptical about the resurrection and being willing to die because of his belief in a risen Savior. He would not deny the resurrection of Jesus, even though at first he was a skeptic and an unbeliever, because Jesus actually got out of the grave. Point number six, the movement has been unstoppable. The movement of the church has been unstoppable. Jesus' movement, Christianity, the single biggest religious movement in the world, reached hundreds and hundreds of countries. Billions have assembled to worship Jesus together. It incorporates more nations and ethnicities and languages than any other religions in the history of the world. If Jesus was just a Jewish guy who never traveled more than about 300 miles from his hometown, didn't get married, didn't have any kids, didn't write any books, never ran for political office, didn't do any of these types of things, but now Time Magazine says he is the most significant person to ever live. How do you explain someone who was poor, oftentimes homeless, and did not have any type of political office being coming the most significant person to ever live? Because he got out of the grave like he said he would. Because he got out of the grave just like he said he would. He is Lord. He is Savior. He didn't just die, but he rose from the dead, and that changes everything. Point number seven, Jesus' tomb was not enshrined. Jesus' tomb was not enshrined. Oftentimes, religious figures, political leaders, people with a, a large following, the same thing happened back then that happens today. When they die, oftentimes there's some type of memorial that's set up for them. People bring flowers, there's candles, there's things that people do to go through the grieving process of this person that they had so much trust in, so much love for. I heard a couple weeks ago, 10,000 people a year go to see Bruce Lee's grave. 50,000 people a year, they say, go to see Jimi Hendrix's grave. Today, if you go to Israel as a tourist and look for the grave of Jesus, they can't tell you exactly where it is. Think about that. Historians, even historians that aren't Christians at that time said that there were many reports of Jesus doing miracle after miracle after miracle, healing so many people. How difficult would it have been if he was actually still in the grave to keep people away from his grave, that his grave would not be memorialized, that we wouldn't know exactly where it is today. His disciples would have continued to go to his grave, but after they saw him alive, there was no need to continue to go to the grave where the stone was rolled away. So there was no memorial. You don't, we don't know where his grave was because nobody cared about it anymore, because he was alive, because he was and actually is alive. He was not in there, so no one continued to go to the tomb. There's no writers that, that report any amount of, God's, of, of his followers, excuse me, continuing to go to his gravesite because he was alive. Point number eight, Jesus's family worshiped him as God. I want to say this pretty quickly. If you're a brother, sibling, cousin, at some point came to you and said, you know what? I figured out some stuff about myself. I'm actually the perfectly righteous Savior sent from God the Father. I am the Son of God. And if you place faith in me, you too will have eternal life and be able to live forever. This is your sibling, your cousin, your uncle, whoever it is, says this to you. What you will say is probably something like this. Well, first of all, you, you, you're not perfect and almighty. Because either I used to beat you up, maybe, or maybe you used to beat me up, but whatever it is, you're not perfect and almighty. Like, that's, just, that's, just not, that's just not the case of what went on. Jesus' brothers were skeptical of him until they saw him alive. 
One of the martyrs I talked about, James, was actually the brother of Jesus who carried his faith to his death, saying, no, Jesus actually did rise from the grave. He is who he said he is. His brother said this. He didn't originally worship Jesus as God, but after his resurrection, he did. Point number nine, Jesus' followers changed the Sabbath day from Saturday to Sunday because that was the day they saw him resurrected. They changed the Sabbath day, the the day of worship for them, from Saturday to Sunday. This would have been a monumental change at this time. At that time in, in their culture, Saturday was the day off. Saturday was the Sabbath. Sunday was a work day. So this would have made things very inconvenient. They chose to to assemble and worship together on a work day, which means not everyone would have been able to be there at the same time. This would have been an inconvenient thing. Not only that, but I know some of y'all grew up in traditional churches. And Jesus' followers changed the day that was set in stone thousands of years before. Hundreds upon hundreds of years before, the people of God, the Jews, were worshiping God on Saturday. On Saturday, they would gather to worship, but now they changed it to Sunday. What would cause them? Y'all know in a traditional church, it takes an act of Congress to change the curtains or to change the communion song or something like that. This is hundreds and hundreds of years, hundreds and hundreds of years of tradition that they changed in the instant. Hundreds and hundreds of years of tradition, they changed it in an instant. Why? Why would they change that? Why would they make things more difficult for themselves? Why would they have to deal with the older church folk that like things the way, the thing, way things have been going? Because Jesus actually got out of the grave, just like he said he would. Point number 10. Extra biblical sources testify to the resurrection of Jesus. So maybe if you're a skeptic, you might have the thought process of, okay, we're well, quoting a lot of Bible to say that the Bible is true, right? So are there any other sources that actually say that this is actually the case? There's a man named, whose name was Josephus. He was a Jew. He was not a follower of Jesus, but he was a historian. And he sought out, at this time, Christianity was like this small sect. This, it, people thought it was kind of weird. It hasn't, hadn't grown nearly to the way it has grown today. I think he was born maybe a few years after Jesus' death and resurrection. So he goes in, he's like, I need to talk to these Christians and figure out what is it that they believe and why do they believe what they believe. Here's what Josephus excuse me, said. About this time, there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man, for he was one who wrought surprising feats and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Christ. When Pilate, upon hearing him, accused by men of the highest standing amongst us, had condemned him to be crucified, those who had in the first place come to love him did not give up their affection for him. On the third day, he appeared to them, restored to life, for the prophets of God had prophesied these and countless other marvelous things about him. And the tribe of the Christians, so-called after him, has still to this day not disappeared. This is extra biblical. This is someone who was not a follower of Jesus, not someone who converted to being a follower of Jesus. He said, I'm just coming to figure out what the facts are, and this is what I am getting for them, from them. Let me say this. If you're a skeptic about Jesus, very glad that you're here. We want you to be able to plug in, get to know us as a church, get to know who we are, build relationships with us. We're very glad you're here. We hope this is a place that you can come and learn about who Christ is and what his claims are. But I also want to challenge you a bit to actually consider the arguments, the arguments, the, the evidences that Jesus actually got out of the grave like he said he would. 
Spend time asking yourself if it truly makes sense that people could have just made this whole thing up and it actually grow and spread the way that it did. Ask yourself, could people have just been delusional and yet still persuasive enough to, to convince so many people to follow them? I want you to ask yourself that if Jesus was just a regular guy like you and I and yet changed the world like no one else has, if he was indeed just another false messiah and a false savior. And I think as you continue to ask that question, you'll find that the evidence suggests that he actually did get out of the grave. That he actually historically raised from the grave and showed himself to eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses who wouldn't, no matter what you threatened them with, would never deny that they saw him alive. And that changes everything. That changes everything in terms of whether or not we can trust Jesus and Christianity. If Jesus truly got out of the grave, then Christianity and following Jesus is valid, period. No matter what anyone else says, no matter what anyone else thinks, no matter what, what kind of jokes people might make about Christians or anything like that, regardless of what people say or do, if you, whether or not you agree or disagree with what Jesus has to say about your life and about the way you should feel or the way you should act in this life, in this world, Regardless of, it, of whether or not, and this is the case, Christians have done horrible things in the name of Jesus. Regardless of how much harm has been done by the people of God, if Jesus did get out of the grave, then following Jesus, Christianity is valid, period. I need a sister that can say period with a T on the end of it. Thank you. appreciate that. <laughs> appreciate that. Uh, one of the things that I, I find to be incredibly important to talk about and I, I got my African-American brothers and sisters in the room on my heart right now when I say this. One of the things that is happening that I would say is plaguing our communities is that there are many, what I would call cults, that are propping up, claiming that the true people of God are those with darker skin or black people, and saying that because Christianity is the white man's religion, you should not believe it. You should not trust that, that Christianity, this white Jesus, so to speak, has been used as a tool of oppression against you, against your people, against your ancestors. So how can you actually follow this God? And many and many are trusting in them and these false teachers. Many are following them and they're saying, I, I believe in a God that validates those of us with dark skin. So I'm not going to believe in this Jesus, in this Christianity. But here's the thing. People who argue in that way are trying to make a claim that, and make an argument that actually doesn't hold up and actually doesn't make sense. It's saying that no matter if Jesus actually lived, no matter if Jesus actually raised from the dead, because some people who claim to be his followers did things that are horrible to you and your people, then he can't actually be who he said he was. That's not the way it works. You can't make an argument about whether or not Jesus actually got out of the grave based on how people who claim his name respond after him. The question is not, what have Christians done? The question is not about the harm or the injustice and all that that has been done. The question is, did Jesus get out of the grave or not? If he didn't, our faith is in vain and we should throw it away. If he did, we should worship him no matter what anyone who claims him has done. We should worship him based on, did he get out of the grave or not? Is he who he says he is or not? What validates Jesus is Jesus. What validates Jesus is what he did. What validates Jesus is not the work of those who claim to follow him, but the work that he did, the work that the Father did in raising him up by the Spirit from the dead. Did Jesus get out of the grave or not? This changes everything for all of us. It changes everything. If he got out of the grave, then he is worthy of our lives sacrificed for him. 
He is worthy of being exalted above all others. If he got out of the grave, then when you look at the Bible and you disagree with it, you realize you're wrong and it's not. If he got out of the grave, when he tells you to do something that you don't want to do and you can't understand it, you can trust that he's right because he got out of the grave like he said he would. He is the resurrected one. What validates our Savior, what validates our faith is he was raised from the grave as the evidence suggests. Regardless of what anyone else says, no matter what anyone else does, it always comes down to this. That changes everything for me. That changes everything for you. That changes everything for everyone living today. Let me pray for us. Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful that you allow us to see evidence of the fact that your claims are true, that you are exactly who you say you are. Father, I want to pray for anyone here who struggles with faith, who struggles in, in doubting who you are. Father, would you, would you move us to actually look at the evidence with clear eyes, with clear thought, and just say, God, if you're true, help me to see it. For anyone who, who is doubting, who is skeptical, Father, rid us, as we talked about last week, of our desire, our tendency to suppress the truth. Father, open our eyes to see that you are exactly who you say you are. And as we know that, as we are rooted in that truth, Father, would you continue to transform us and realize that there is nothing that you ask of us that is actually too high, that is actually too much because you are exactly who you say you are and we can find new life, eternal life in you. And Father, we thank you for all these things. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.